So you can know that you are loved by your spouse when, and if I let you fill in that blank, I would have all sorts of different answers. I took the boys down to Iowa to hang out with some friends over spring break. And, and it was one of those weeks where, where I was going and I didn't actually take time off of work. I spent all sorts of hours down there working and doing stuff and none of the week really went the way I had expected. You ever had those weeks? I then had to pick up a camper and drive it back to the UP Friday into Friday night. I was thrilled. I was like this far from just ditching the camper somewhere in western Min or eastern Minnesota and just being like, for whatever. If it's there in the spring, we'll get it in the spring. But we made it back. Now, I woke up Saturday morning, and we had to get back because I was supposed to be speaking at a men's breakfast on Saturday over in Ishpeming, which got canceled, which was great. It allowed me to sleep in a little bit. So I woke up, and I looked out at the driveway, and I'm like, oh, I got to clean this thing off. So I go out, it's wet, heavy snow. We've got a snowblower, we blow the whole thing off. Took me as long to clean off the cars and get all the snow off our vehicles so that it wasn't, you know, you can't blow the driveway off and then clean off all the cars and put all the snow back on the driveway. That just is ridiculous. So it took a couple hours, cleaned everything off, cleared the driveway, everything's working great. Come back in, I'm hot, sweaty, ready for lunch. Allison's made lunch, I know I'm loved. Not only did she make lunch, she got a big glass of water for me. It was fantastic. I'm like, I don't have to get anything. My wife is so great. So we're sitting down and Noah is complaining about his drink and said that there was something floaty in it. And I was like, well, it's not that big of a deal. So I took a carrot and I dropped a carrot in my water. I said, see, I've got floaties in mine too. Then I went to reach for the carrot, pushed it down below the ice, and now my carrot is stuck in the water. And the only way to get it out is to take a big drink of my water, right? So I did. My wife had given me a cup of water and vinegar. <laughs> you laugh. So did I. April Fools, he yells. Oh. She told the boys, they asked if she was going to have done it to them. And she's like, no, because I know Brock won't do anything back. I'm like, you're right. But now I'm eating my lunch with this awful taste of vinegar in our mouths, or my mouth. Ah, oh. I still taste it a little bit right now. You know you're loved, right? Jesus had a similar type of thing happen, only it showed the opposite. What we're going to see in this passage is that Jesus was not loved by the people. So, so my wife was goofy to me, but it showed that she cared and loved me or loves me. Jesus, on the other hand, things are going to happen to him and it's going to show that he was praised but not loved. And that whole not loving Jesus component of, of what the Jewish people were doing becomes the very crux of the reality or reason that Jesus is crucified on Friday. So we've got people on Sabbath day, on, on Palm Sunday, praising him. 
as he enters Jerusalem and four days later seeking to kill him. It's because they praised him for what he could do for them, but did not love him for who he was. So there's the point of the message. We can praise Jesus for what he does, but we're actually called to love him for who he is. So Matthew chapter 21 is where we are. We're going to read the first 11 verses of this chapter, and then we'll sort of step back and look at it. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. That's a weird set of commands. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, put on them their cloaks, and he, being Jesus, sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, and the crowds that went before them, before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So Jesus enters the city. In order to really get a good handle on this, to, to get a good picture of it, we should step back a little bit and look at some of the context of what was going on and what all was happening. That gives us a fuller picture of this event. If we were to back up just a couple of verses to Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 19, you'll see titled in most of your Bibles, Jesus foretells his death a third time. So the end of this story, as much as I said it was because of what the people did, it, it was already promised by God, prophesied by God that it would happen. And now Jesus is telling his very disciples, this will take place. I'm going to this place so this can happen. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and, he, uh, and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Now that seems pretty clear to us. That Jesus is going to be handed over to the chief priests. He's going to be flogged, mocked, and crucified. And then he's going to come back to death. Right? None of them caught that. I'm not entirely sure how they didn't catch that but they didn't. And maybe it was just because they couldn't imagine that this celebrity Jesus would have such a shift in life that he could possibly be in that situation. He is loved and adored or seemingly loved and adored in this moment in the public eye. 
So for him to make a comment that he's going to, within a week, reach a point to where he's going to be crucified, they can't imagine that. If we go to the Gospel of John, John gives us a a little bit bigger picture of this, and we're going to look at a a series of texts that, that point us in a direction. John chapter 11 is an amazing passage about the death and resurrection of Lazarus. In case you're not sure, Jesus intentionally let Lazarus die. In fact, it says in chapter 11 that because Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus so much, he let Lazarus die. That's a side point. At some point, we'll preach on that passage or teach on that passage. And it is an amazing thing to see how Jesus does what he does, allowing people to go through periods of time of pain so that he can bring them to where he wants them to be, which is a greater understanding of the worth of Christ. But John chapter 11, verses 7 and 8. Then after this, he said to to the disciples, let us go to, to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, which is like the formal teacher name, right? Um, Not wanting to be disrespectful here, Jesus, is what they're saying. Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you're going to go back or you're going to go there again. The Jews were seeking to stone Jesus because he had told them that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. So they picked up stones to kill him, and Jesus just walks away, which is odd. You would think a mob of people with stones could hit one guy, but he just walked away. They couldn't figure out where he went. It wasn't his time yet. But then he says to the the disciples, we're going to go back because that's where Lazarus is. And they're like, Jesus, you were just there, and they wanted to kill you. Fast forward to the after Lazarus has been resurrected, verses 48 to 53. And this is, the, this is the Pharisee speaking. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation, which clues us into the Pharisees a little bit. They were more concerned about their place in culture and their politics than they were about the Messiah because they liked their spot. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and then they sought to kill him because he had done what only God could do and the Messiah could do, but they didn't want him to be the Messiah, so they had to kill him. Fast forward just a little bit further to John 12, 9 through 11. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead, 
right? Here's a guy they all knew had died and Jesus had raised him from the dead four days after he had been dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. That's the culture of this people that Jesus is putting himself back in the midst of. They not only want to kill him because they don't like him, they want to kill him because he's doing things that only the Messiah can do and he cannot be the Messiah. Why? Because they don't like him. He's not what they expect. He's not doing what they would do in his place so they can't allow him to continue on proving that he's the Messiah so they must kill him, which really only just goes further to prove that he's the Messiah as he fulfills more and more prophecies, but they don't grasp that. Back to Matthew chapter 11. Sorry, Matthew 21. 1 through 11. I have struggled all week telling myself that this was Matthew chapter 11. There's just too many ones. 2 1 colon 1 dash 1 1 is what it says everywhere I look. So I just have it backwards. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, right? Back into this place where all of these Jews are waiting to kill the Messiah, waiting to kill Christ. As they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. Uh, that would be like saying you drove back into Marquette from, or driving up Highway 41 and you got to Harvey, right? You're, you're really close. You're basically there. And that's where they are. They are getting so close that they are effectively in Jerusalem. And he, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say to them, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. That's odd. A, how could Jesus possibly have known that there was a donkey there? Obviously, he Googled it, right? <laughs> he called somebody on his cell phone to find out what was available. He looked it up in the yellow pages. I mean, we could just keep going back in time and in history and the things that we use to find things, and none of them worked because they didn't exist then. He just knew. How? Because he's Jesus. And when he wants to know something, he knows it. When there's something that furthers his purpose as the Messiah, God makes that clear to him. So, uh, Philippians chapter 2 tells us that Christ emptied himself of his, of his God-like abilities, not his divinity, but his God-like abilities to know all things, do all things, be all things at once. But when he needs to know something, he's still God. He still knows. So he says, go into the town, you'll find a donkey and a colt, grab them, take them here. If anybody asks you why, just tell them that I need them and they'll send them. If we flip over to Mark chapter 11, verses five and six, we see how it played out differently in Mark's gospel account in that he actually recognizes that or what happens then. And some of those standing there said to these people coming to take the donkey and the colt, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told him that what Jesus had said, the Lord needs them. 
and they let them go. So there's, again, the role of Christ. As, we, as people saw Jesus, they not only saw this prophet Messiah, but they saw somebody they wanted to help. If Jesus needed it, sure, whatever he wants. Just let him take it. But Jesus knew that and knew the donkey would be there. Go back to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and we see that this is foretold. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Why? Seriously, why? It wasn't faster to ride a colt that probably struggled some under the weight of a full-grown man. So why did Jesus get on this thing and ride in? I mean, this, this isn't somebody who doesn't walk much. He spent three years as an itinerant preacher, and that means he traveled from place to place. How did he travel there? By walking. Walking was normal. He now has like just a couple miles left, which is virtually nothing to their culture. And he grabs a donkey? Not even a donkey? A colt? A baby donkey? Why? Because in their culture, kings rode into towns on horses when they came for war. And kings rode into towns on donkeys when they came for peace. So you knew if the king comes in riding a horse, you are in serious trouble. He's there to parlay maybe for some level, but he's there to destroy you. The king coming on a donkey or the colt of a donkey, that is not an animal that causes fear in the hearts of people when they see you. It's not an animal that chases down you or others as you run away because you probably outrun the colt with a person on it. The king shows up on a donkey showing I come in peace. I do not come to harm you irrespective of the power that I hold, irrespective of the armies that I command, I am not here to harm you. And so Jesus has them get a colt, has them get a donkey so that he can come into town proclaiming that he is not there to destroy them, but he comes in peace. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and they put on them their cloaks and Jesus sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Why? Why would they do this? That makes almost no sense to us. It actually makes a lot of sense to our culture. We just don't think about it right. Let's say there's a lady about to get married and she's about to walk down the aisle. What is the typical thing that happens in our American culture? Somebody walks down and throws flower petals on the ground. Why? So that she's not walking on the ground, 
but her value is shown because somebody has done what they can to keep her off of the dirt because of her value. That's what they're doing here. They're putting something down so that Jesus, even on the colt, doesn't have to touch the ground to show his value. I mean, that's the mindset of these people that in just a few days are going to want to kill him. So when we say they praised Jesus, they really did. They praised him with their actions. They praised him with what they gave to him. They're going to praise him with their words. Hosanna or praise to the son of David. That may seem benign as you read it, this whole son of David bit. Well, yes, he's in the lineage of David, so that must be what they mean, right? No. No, this is a title to the king. They have not had a king as a son of David for a long time, and now they see this one coming, Christ Jesus himself coming, and they call him the son of David. He's going to take the throne. He's going to rule Jerusalem, rule Israel, free them from the Romans. That's what he's come to do. See, peace to Jerusalem, war to the Romans. And so they praise him. They praise him with their actions. They praise him with what they give. They praise him with their words. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna. Praise to the one coming as David's heir. Praise to the one coming in the name of the Lord, which is not a lightly used phrase. Praise him in the highest. What do they mean, the highest? And why is that even relevant? This is a people. As you read through the Old Testament, you will see the the word Lord, L-O-R-D, spelled with a big capital L, a small O, a small R, and a small D, all capitalized. Why? Because that word said Yahweh in the Old Testament, in Hebrew. But it didn't actually say Yahweh. It actually said Y-H-W-H in our letters with a variety of set of vowels put to it. And those vowels would let people know what word to say so as to not say Yahweh because they would not put even their mouth to his name because of how high he was. So when these people say, praise be to Jesus, this one in the highest, they are admitting God-likeness to him. That's what they're saying. This is not a mistake on their part. This is not a, oh, we didn't realize what we were doing. This wasn't even one of those situations where somebody put words on the screen and you were just singing along with them even if you didn't really believe them because they were there and that's what everybody's doing. This is a group of people whose passions and emotions were understood and directed to Jesus. And it was wrong because they didn't actually believe it. And when they say these things to Christ without it actually being true, it is not praise to him. 
if we go back to Amos chapter five, we would, we would read about what God thinks of praise and adoration and the doing of worship to him out of lives that actually don't care about him. And he says, the things that you burn to be good aroma, they reek. Your offerings are disgusting. Your feasts are abhorrent to me because you're pretending. These people, pretending. They don't even know they're pretending. But it's evident to us that they're pretending because in a few days they shift from praise to this Jesus to crucify him as a murderer or as a convict. So do we praise Jesus or do we love him? That's really the question. Because we can show up places, say nice things, do nice things, give nice things, look nice ways, and praise Jesus with our words. But do we really love him? What does it mean to love Jesus? It means, at least in part, that we look for ways to get him not what he can give us. If we went back to Matthew chapter seven, probably the scariest passage in all of scripture to me. Matthew chapters five, six, and seven are the Sermon on the Mount. Five has the Beatitudes and a lot of, a, a lot of this is what you are. You've heard that this, but, but here's the reality. Chapter six deals with a, a lot of other things. We have the Lord's Prayer in there. Chapter 7 starts out with that much-quoted verse, judge not lest you too be judged, which is totally misunderstood. And then we move on to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What is the will of the Father? He says later that it's to believe in the one he sent in Christ, to believe in him. And that's where you actually get life, not just calling on his name. On that day, the judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Didn't we do all of this? To which Jesus responds, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Terrifying. Because I think these people thought they trusted Jesus. But they really weren't. They were using Jesus to get something. Because if they really had been focused on Jesus and Jesus-centered, not them-centered, they wouldn't say, didn't we do these things? It would have been, didn't you do these things through us? But you could see their focus was on them, not on Christ. Another passage that, that points us in the same direction, and it takes a little bit of looking to actually understand this because it's a, it's a story written in a lot of words, but the movement of it gets missed. So John chapter 6 and some of you know John chapter 6. six. Theologically, it's incredibly deep. Jesus says a lot of, of things in there. 
The beginning of John chapter 6, though, is a story about a little boy with five loaves of bread and two fish. A happy meal of sorts. And he gives it to Jesus. And with that, Jesus feeds 5,000 men, plus women and children, however many people it was. Beyond 5,000 with one person's meal, it's 5,000, 10,000, 20,000. The miracle's pretty much the same. A miracle. And he feeds them. And then he leaves. So typical of Jesus. He does stuff to make himself really famous and then just sort of walks away. And everyone's like, where'd he go? I don't know. Then they got word that he's on the other side of the sea. So they tromp around the sea and go find him. And in John chapter 6, verse 26, verse 25, it says, they found him on the other side of the sea and they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? You were with us over there. We liked it. Why did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. You're looking for me not because I did miracles and proved my position before God and in God as the Messiah. You're here because I gave you a free meal. Do they want Jesus? No. They wanted what Jesus could give them. That's where we have the biggest tendency to fail as believers. We start wanting Jesus only for what he can give us, which makes what party the center point? Me. I want him for what he can give to me, which really makes me the focus of that statement. But what we're supposed to do is want Jesus for Jesus, right? So he doesn't give them another meal. He has the ability. He could conjure food out of the sea for all, for all it would matter to his power. But he doesn't give it to them. Instead, he tells them how to get food that will give them eternal life, which is him. And they say, yeah, we don't want that. So just so we're clear, he offered them food that would make them full until the next meal, and they loved him for it. He offered them food that would give them eternal life, and they hated him for it. Sometimes Jesus is going to give to you and I what we need to sustain us through a moment. And it will feel amazing. We'll see his faithfulness, his love, his compassion. And then other times he offers to us that which gives us life eternal. And in our heart, in our brokenness, we might despise him for it because we don't want that. We want this. We don't want the gospel. We want a nicer car. We don't want the gospel. We want more fun. We don't want the gospel. We want more food, more friends, more power, more position, more respect. 
and we start looking for those things to get them from Jesus, which says we see Jesus as a tool to be used, not the one that we love. That's what the Jews did. Their perception of Jesus was accurate. He was God. It was accurate. He was worthy of praise. It was accurate. He was worthy of gifts and then giving things to him. But they wanted Jesus for what Jesus could give to them. He was supposed to come in and rid them of the Romans. He didn't do it. He was supposed to come in and make them a nation again. He didn't do it. He gave them freedom from something greater than the Romans. He gave them a nationality that was greater than the borders of land. And they didn't want it because it's not what they wanted. If we seek Jesus only because of what he can give to us, we will find that we want to discard him when he doesn't give it to us. And we can't live like that. We have to be men and women who love Jesus because of who he is, who want Jesus because of who he is, who care about him because of who he is, who praise him because of who he is. Not because of what he can give to us. Friday of this week, he gets crucified. Sunday, he rises from the dead and we celebrate and we love it. And we seek Jesus because of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to praise you, to give to you, to adore you. And we ask, Father, that you would that you would help us to see that you are all we need. We do love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.